I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is the Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Okay, Claire, what can people expect from this Celebrity Memoir Book Club? Basically, we read the books and then we give you what we think about them. And I get that a lot of people don't like to hear what women think because it's only 2022 and we haven't gotten that far with progress. Well, I just don't think that they know about the women thinking. Okay, so newsflash, (laughs) women can think now and sometimes we put them into the internet. And if you don't want to hear what women think on the internet, I agree with you. Me neither. (laughs) But if you do want to hear what women think on the internet, then keep listening. If you love us, Ashley reads all of our five-star Apple reviews at the end of the podcast. And if you don't want to hear it, we implore you to find a man to do this or even nobody to do this or even read the book yourself, which is always a legal option in these United States. I cannot confirm or deny for any other country in the world. But do you know another country where (laughs) it's the most fun to read books on October 27th specifically? What? Where? Who? Probably Boston. I love that country. (laughs) One of my favorite places to travel. We're going to arrive on a duck and have an incredible time. If you have not yet purchased tickets and you live in the Boston area, I hope that you do buy tickets and the link will be in the show notes. Please, please, please come, you guys. We love you so much. I don't know if we'll be able to make it back anytime soon. So should we like make it Halloweeny? Should we come dressed as Matt and Ben? Should we come dressed as Mindy Kaling and her roommate dressed as Matt and Ben? Sure. Okay. Okay. Well, see you there. Please come. We love you. You won't know what we wore unless you come. And Claire, from a legal perspective, how was your week? Okay. Again, this is so hard because we are recording one week before it drops. So when you guys are listening to this, I will have turned 30. I do not want to talk about what it is to be 30 the day before I turn it because who knows, maybe I'll develop a giant sore in the middle of my head. 30-year-old head sores, much like bed sores, (laughs) but gloppier. So I don't want to lie to you guys and say I know what it's like. I'm not apprehensive overall because I think of myself and Ashley as one. You know how they say that babies don't know the difference between themselves and their mothers until they're like a year old? I think like I don't know the difference between me and you. <laughs> and I've been 30 for like a while. Yeah. So I just have emotionally been 30. And I'm like, ah, bonus time. So it feels like not that big of a deal to me. What I do want to talk about is this week that I feel I've been duped. The chapter would be called Duped. Okay. <laughs> and when I met Mac, who I am supposed to wed. Yeah, you guys have made a vow was like a messy I don't want to say gross but like gross person <laughs> and that's why we got along because I too am a pretty messy and I pretend like I'm not gross but I'll say gross person and I was like I'm safe here we can wear the same pair of sweatpants for upwards of six days who cares not us because we're the same and of recent suddenly he's like I think we should be making more of an effort to be tidy and he's kind of like Claire you leave cereal everywhere. And he's like, Claire, like you just take everything you own and throw it in a pile in the living room. And like, maybe you should be putting it away eventually. And I'm like, who are you? (laughs) Cause this is not what I signed up for. And he's like, I don't know. I just feel like I'm starting to think that maybe we should keep things tidier. And I'm like, since when I didn't even meet you for the first time that long ago, it's only been a few years. And I'm just worried about what married life will look like. Cause we're already growing apart. (laughs) We already don't see eye to eye. And I just want to be like, if you want this whole house to be spick and span, you clean it. But I'm not going to put my own things away. That's crazy. (laughs) In my house? In my house where I pay rent? Well, I don't know what to tell you. That sounds hard. I mean, there's a reason we don't live together. And there's a reason I'm not marrying you. And it's because I'm messy. Yeah, I would literally die. I know. I think last week you said you would kill me. I think I would. I think I wouldn't want you dead. I'd regret it afterwards. But I do think in a fit of rage. I think that if there was like milk drops on my counter... I would probably lose milk my shit. Spills. What are you gonna do? <laughs> Cry about it? That's rule number one in milk club. No use killing over spilt milk. Anyway, so I'm feeling a bit duped because I did not know the man I was marrying. I did not think he would grow and change. And I'm so listen, sorry. If anybody on earth thinks I'm planning on growing up and changing, you got another thing coming. I'm staying young and entitled forever. <laughs> I love that. I'm planning on doing that. That's why. Our business will never die. It could fail, but we won't let it die. Never let it die. (laughs) Ashley. Yes. If you were a celebrity, what would you name the chapter of this week's memoir? I guess I would call it Plans Girl Making Plans. Who? You? I'm trying. I was out to dinner with my friend recently at a dinner that had been pushed off for several dozen times because we're both 
we should meet up people, which like we do mean earnestly. That's what makes us different than other we should meet up people. When I say we should meet up, I like genuinely want to meet up. I just am never the person who will come through with a plan and a place. Like sometimes I'll say, hey, do you want to get dinner tonight? But then if they're like, sure, where do you want to go? I'm just like, I don't know. I guess to bed. I can't think of restaurants. You know, I get restaurant thought paralysis or restaurant choosing paralysis. I can't do it. There's too many in New York City. I wish I lived in a town that had one restaurant. Anyway, I'm trying to be better about plans making with Mm -hmm. people that I wish I hung out with more because I don't think that there's any reason for us to not hang out other than the fact that being the plans maker is a difficult task. And so I'm trying to do it a little. I see places, but then I get anxious recommending a place I've never actually been to. And I only go to the same three places. And so that's why I'm trying to be a plans maker because I'm like, I've just got to go to the places. My point is that sometimes I'm just sitting around thinking, I wish I had plans tonight. And I'm like, wait, I have friends. I'm just not the plans maker. So if no one makes the plans, then I don't have anything to do. So I should just make the plans. And that's what I'm working on. Yay. We love growth. Not me. I won't grow. I just said that, but. Good for you. I'm also not even planning on growing. I'm planning on doing the same things that I was always doing, but I instigate. Nice. This week, we have quite an instigator. I wish. I wish we had. I don't. Okay. I am going to tell a story because I know I'm the bad cop in this podcast. And I just think something needs to be said to you guys who I love with my whole fucking heart. But in the way that like your parents know it's good for you, even if you don't know. I dated this guy one time who said to me, when did the hot dogs in New York get so bad? And I said, what? And he said, when I came to New York City for the first time and I was six years old, I had a hot dog from a truck and it was the best hot dog I'd ever had in my life. And now when I go get those hot dogs, they're just not as good. What happened to the quality of the New York hot dog? And I remember having to explain to him, the hot dog is the same, my friend. The difference is you're not six. <laughs> the difference is this is not some cool, amazing experience where you're in New York City for the first time and you have a half of the taste buds you have now and you're not just like lucky to be at the Natural History Museum. The difference is now you're an adult man with money who goes to restaurants that Ashley would never know to recommend. I would love to hear about them if he could give me a call. <laughs> and the hot dog is less impressive. It's more than a hot dog. It was a memory. Do you know the problem is that I don't have the palate for fancy restaurants because to me, a street hot dog is still as good as it ever was. Yeah, because you have a joie de vivre in you and you appreciate every moment in life. And that's why we get along because we have so much fun doing almost nothing. (laughs) Anyway, back to my point. A lot of you guys have requested that we read this week's author, Amy Poehler. Yes, please. And a lot of you guys remember loving this book and you love this book and I think you wanted us to love it. Here's my question. Yeah. What? Did you guys love about it? And so that's what I'm trying to say is I'm not trying to say you guys are dumb or you don't know about books or anything. And I don't want to break your heart and say like, this is a shitty, it is a shitty book, but I don't want to break your heart about it and like place judgment on you. What I want you guys to realize is that in that moment, when you were six years old eating this book, hot dog, it was the best hot dog of your life. But then if you go back as an adult and reread this book, you're like, oh, there's almost nothing in here. The times have changed. It doesn't have the meaning it once had. And you know what else I was thinking about? We met at Acme and she said her biggest regret about her wedding was not having a videographer at her rehearsal dinner because her friend gave her this incredible toast and now they can't ever watch it again. They just have to remember it. And me and Ashley both were like, great. Let it live as a legend in your mind. Not everything has to be revisited. Rewatching it would only disappoint you because you would show it to someone. You would show someone the recording and say, watch this speech. It was so funny. And not being in that room, whoever is watching it would watch it and be like, yeah, pretty fun speech, I guess. They would not roar with laughter in the way that you would hope that they would because they weren't there. And so- My point is, I think that the moment in time that this book came to your hands, you were probably a huge fan of Amy Poehler. You probably loved Parks and Rec. You were probably a young individual who had all the hope in the world and not as much critical thinking and the internet hadn't rotted your brain and you were happy and not everything needs to be revisited. I'm just going to say that. And I, I just want you guys, if you have something that you love and is dear to you, Maybe don't ask us to read it. Very rarely will it hold up, especially when it is a clear cash grab by a number one celebrity. I wish that these comedians had not written these books. This was our initial qualm with reading them is like we knew that they were all going to be bad. I would have loved to someday work with Amy Poehler. And now I'm just like, ugh, you annoy the shit out of me. And now I'm going to have said really mean things about you on the internet. So it'll probably never be. Should we read Amy Poehler? Yes. Please. (laughs) Amy Poehler was born September 16th, 1971. She's 51 years currently. 
And this book came out in 2014, which was what, eight years ago at this point. So she wrote it when she was 43, 42, 43. Like most people struggling to fill a book, she writes both a preface and a little foreword with instructions for how to use this book. I also, before we even get into the book, want to address the physicality of this book. It's a large book with a lot of pages and all of them are glossy. Thick and shiny. Yeah, like a coffee table book. It's so weird. Why did she choose to do that? It's like a textbook or something. No, this book was like meant for the bathroom. Like you could splash a little water on this thing and it's going to be fine. I guess that's it. But it's a really bizarre choice to make for a book because this is a soft cover. Yeah. We have soft cover editions. Anyway, so I had hope for this book. It starts with writing as hard a preface. So this is a chapter about how hard it was for her to write this book, how everyone underestimates how difficult it is to write a book, how she herself just had a really difficult time writing this book. And the thing that gave me hope is she writes, once a book is published, it can't be changed, which is a stressful proposition for this improviser who relies on her charm. I've been told that I am better in the room and prettier in person. Both these things are not helpful when writing a book. Right off the bat, she acknowledges that this shouldn't be nonsense. This should be something you can be proud of for years. And then she goes on to write almost nothing. This chapter is really interesting to me because writing about how difficult writing a book is and how seriously she took it, it's thoughts you would have if you were planning to write a good book. But writing about how difficult it is to write a book for like 10 pages is something that you would include in one of these nonsensy listicle books. By thinking it, I thought maybe we'd get a good book, but by including it, I knew we wouldn't get a good book. She also says, let me offer this apology. Please excuse this self-indulgent preface. I know what I am doing. I'm presenting a series of reasons as to why you should lower your expectations so that you can be blown away by my sneaky insights about life and work. I am a grown woman. I know my own tricks. I know how good I am at bemoaning my process and pretending I don't care so that my final product will seem totally natural and part of my essence and not something I sweated for months and years. One of the things I learned about me while writing about me is that I am really onto myself. I have got Amy Poehler's number. I'll tell you. We did not get Amy Poehler's number. That's what made me mad is I was like, okay, she's going to get into herself. There's not a lick of insight. I don't know a goddamn thing about Amy Poehler except for that she snores. Yeah. And she like is from the Boston area. And that she loves to smoke weed, which I actually was caught off guard by. She did still write a book despite hating the prospect of writing a book. And it really does just make you wonder why. I know we say this all the time, but like you don't have to write a book. No one's making you write a book. There was nothing in this. This really was a cash grab. And you have to wonder why did a woman at the height of her career need a cash grab? I, maybe the divorce. I was wondering if maybe the divorce was messier and more expensive than she lets on. Will Arnett just came for everything. Maybe. I mean, she did almost 150 episodes of SNL. At this point, she was in, I think, season seven of Parks and Rec, like seven seasons starring on a network television show. That is not pennies. Anyway, she wrote this book and she said, I tried to tell the truth and be funny. What else do you want from me, you filthy animals? I guess to try harder or ask somebody else to try or to have not tried at all. But if this was your best shot at it, maybe just don't. And we get into instructions for how to use this book. Not as a fly swatter. She doesn't say that, but that's all I would use it for from this point forward. Yeah, she just basically says, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm in the middle of my life. I'm too young to know everything, but I'm too old to think I know anything. This is just a missive from the middle. But then she has this weird last paragraph that I think actually is more of a red flag than I realized at first. Inattention men, don't despair. There is plenty of stuff in here for you too. Since I've spent the majority of my life in rooms filled with men, I feel like I know you well. I love you. I love the shit out of you. I think this book will speak to men in a bunch of different ways. I guess I just kind of feel like, who cares if a man likes this book? (laughs) Yeah, I will say if I ever wrote a book, it would be not for the purpose of being like, and there's something here for men too. (laughs) Just that fear of being like, men, men, I love you. I really like you. So anything that I might imply to the otherwise is not true. Okay. So she opens with falling in love with performing. She grew up in Boston. She was in a school play. She does this thing throughout several chapters where she'll open with one story and then she won't conclude that story. Then she'll move into similar stories and then close back on that first story. It is not effective. It's just confusing. So nothing interesting comes out of this chapter. It's just about the first time she ever was on stage. She played Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz in fourth grade. And then again was not in a play until her senior year of high school, which I think harkens back to our point in the Constance Wu episode where we said how good you are at the arts in high school has no bearing on your life. Yeah. She really was only in three plays in her whole childhood. But she has this quote, which blows my mind. A lot of people ask me if I always knew I was going to be on Saturday Night Live. I think the simple answer is yes. 
I don't mean to sound cocky. I didn't know if I had the talent or drive. I just had a tiny little voice whispering inside of me. That same voice would tell me that I would meet Carol Burnett someday. I would find love and I would be okay. We all have a tiny whispery voice inside of us, but the bad ones are usually at a lower register and come through a little clearer. I don't know where I got the good voice from. It was a mix of loving parents, luck, and me. But ever since I was a small child, I would look at places where I wanted to be and believe I would eventually be on the other side of the glass. I believed that someday in the future, I would be rehearsing on stage at Saturday Night Live while a gaggle of sophomore girls would be waving to me. They took a tour of Rockefeller Center. Yeah, and she was like, oh yeah, I will be on SNL someday. That is true. I guess it was true. Yeah, good for her for knowing. A lot of people don't have that little voice inside of them. So big ups, little Amy. She presents an interesting depiction of like a joyful vessel full of nothing. I can't explain it, but a lot of this book is about how she has no trauma. Yeah. And she just always believed in herself and it it just worked out. And you're just like, okay, great. I guess that that is what people like about her is that she is a happy, fun, whatever you need her to be. So that makes an enjoyable person to have around at work in a writer's room whatever. And I think that she is just deeply likable at a surface level. And that's how she gets away with not providing anything else. I think that's why people read this book and liked it. I got through half the book before I was like, wait a second, what is she talking about? Because I just thought she was likable. So then she gets to plain girl versus the demon. And here she talks about the insecurities you might have about how you look. This is an interesting chapter. It's very much of 2014. It's kind of pre-body positivity. I kind of found it not refreshing. It's not new. But her takeaway is basically like, hey, I realized early on I was going to be the prettiest girl in the room. So I figured out something I was good at. And I just doubled down on that. And I'm like, yeah, why do we have to fight to be the prettiest girl in the room all the time? Why can't you just say I'm good at other stuff? And that's what I like about myself. Yeah. She says, I had already made a decision early on that I would be a plain girl with tons of personality and accepting it made everything a lot easier. If you're lucky, there's a moment in your life where you'll have some say as to what your currency is going to be. I decided early on it was not going to be my looks. I cannot in good faith pretend that I have fallen in love with how I look. Yeah. And I do think that that is true. I think liking what you look like is ongoing acceptance Mm -hmm. that like ebbs and flows, especially I don't I mean, we've read every single person who's made it in Hollywood in a not conventionally attractive way. The industry really makes you take a second look at yourself and be like, are you sure you like what you look like? And that does have to be really hard. She says, I was eventually okay, and you will be too. It's interesting to compare this to I think Tina Fey's chapter on looks, especially looks for women in comedy who were kind of told, well, you could be funny instead. And then you get to the top of being funny and they're like, well, were you hot this whole time? Because if you're going to be at the top, you better be hot. And you're like, I thought <laughs> I didn't have to be hot here. That was the whole freaking point. We're on a goddamn podcast where our faces don't even show on the icon and people have called us ugly. And I'm like, you can't see us. Yeah. I think Tina Fey said in her book that Lauren told her, you have to reach a certain level of attractiveness before people even listen to what you have to say. And she said it's easier just to hit that level and then be allowed to be heard than to fight it. I guess I feel like right now, a lot of what I hear still says you can be beautiful too and you should because the most important thing is to be beautiful. Whereas I appreciate that Amy's like, I don't know, man, I'm not going to be the most beautiful girl in the room. I can be the funniest girl in the room. And I like that about myself. And focusing on those things makes me not care so much about my physical insecurities. I like that. Why do we always have to be learning to love how we look. Why can't we just forget about it and think about something else for a second? There is just like an entitlement when you see someone in any sort of public space, especially a digital public space, that people expect them to be attractive and to put forth effort into their attractiveness. The only people who are allowed to show up disheveled are the ones who are so pretty that you're like, it doesn't matter. And then people applaud them for it. But I agree that just being like, yeah, this isn't the most important thing about me. Listen to the words I'm saying. But then I agree with Tina's book, honestly, that like people don't listen. Yeah. Sometimes the easiest thing is just look okay. I mean, I see people all the time on TikTok, like commenters who I think would think of themselves as very progressive, very left, very body positive. When you say things like bestie, not that coat or like bestie, not that haircut, like girl, no, put down that sweater or whatever. What you're saying is you're not allowed to have a thought unless you have hit what I deemed physically worthy. I mean, I had that meltdown a couple of weeks ago because someone just commented on an absolutely nonsense video of mine being like, you would look a lot better with your eyebrows filled in. And it's just like, okay, I didn't realize I had to have a thought that I wanted to post and then press pause, go to the bathroom, do my face and then come back out and press go. I didn't realize I owed you guys the best, most manicured version of myself at all times. Because sometimes they say they think they're being helpful, but I'm like, the implication here is 
how dare I look less than my potential, but I owe you my absolute hottest version of myself before I'm even allowed to exist in front of you. My thoughts don't matter unless you deem me attractive enough. She ends this chapter saying that I'm not underestimating the access I get as a blonde white lady from America. Believe me, blonde hair can take you really far, especially with the older men. And I do think that's true. I think a man over 52 gets really thrown off by blonde hair. I guess I also wonder because Tina's chapter had a lot to do with weight. And Amy references a few times that she had a pretty little body and a flat stomach. Like she references that specifically. And so I wonder if it just didn't come up because it didn't have to. Yeah. Like she already was TV ready once they got the wig team together. (laughs) She then has these plastic surgery haikus. The funny thing about her whole It's So Hard to Write a Book is that then what she wrote was not a book. Every chapter has two pages dedicated to a title card for the chapter heading This is two pages that are just haikus. She has photos. She has other people write essays. Her and Tyler Cameron had very similar books and that they only wrote about half of it and they outsourced the other half and then they made images the third half. So these haikus are about how plastic surgery actually looks bad and so that's why you shouldn't get it. It is another deeply 2014 moment, I would say. If you plump up your lips, the words that come out of them sound ridiculous. Okay. Can I be honest? You look like a lady from the Broadway show Cats. I have no idea if you're angry or sad since you got fillers. And it's funny because I do think there is a valid conversation to be had about plastic surgery and how prevalent it is today. But these are not those conversations. These are basically making fun of you for having bad plastic surgery. I kind of think she would only say plastic surgery is stupid when she could see someone had gotten bad work done. She's the kind of person who wouldn't know about under eye filler and just be like, well, no, no, no. She looks, she just sleeps better now. Then she's a chapter about being pregnant on SNL. And I will say this is a crazy story. She was pregnant. She was working on SNL. It was 2008. So it was like the hottest season they ever had where Tina Fey was doing Sarah Palin. She was working up until the day she went into labor. Yeah. She had her baby on a Saturday. She was supposed to be on the show that night. Friday, she calls her OBGYN to get the confirmation that everything's a go ahead. And the reception picks up crying and is like, he died. <laughs> She had some old ass OBGYN who had been Sophia Loren's OBGYN and he just died of a heart attack. But I think at an age where you're like, it's kind of natural causes. So she is one day out from having a baby. At that point, she didn't know she was one day out. She knew she was like between one and I guess eight days out. And she said she liked working because it kept her mind off of being pregnant, that she didn't want to have to just sit and think about it all day. John Hamm was the host that week. And she says, I hung up the phone and told John and the hair and makeup people that my doctor had just died and I was due tomorrow. And then I knew it seemed like a weird punchline, but my beloved dear Italian grandpa was not going to be able to help me. I felt so terrible about the fact. And all I was thinking was, what about me? I cried in my madman dress and John Hand held me by the shoulders and looked at me and said, I know this is very sad, but it's a really important show for me. So I'm going to need you to get your shit together. John Hamm, he makes his second appearance in this podcast in two weeks after he was wrongfully accused last week. I still don't know if it was wrongful. Anyway, there was a lot of interesting effects from Amy Poehler missing that show to go have her baby. She delivered her baby safely, albeit with a different doctor. And then they had to bring in Elizabeth Moss to replace her during a Mad Men sketch. They're like, oh, we'll just have the actual actress come in and play the character she always plays. She ended up meeting Fred Armisen that night and they got married a year later. Now I think she calls that two-year marriage hell. Oh. He's a really weird guy and all of his ex-wives are like, it was awful. Isn't she a Scientologist? Yeah. So hell on all accounts. Hell on all sides. She also talks about wanting drugs when she got pregnant. And she says a lot of women she knows had natural births. Maya Rudolph gave birth to both of her children. No drugs in her own bed, in her own house. And she says, as a mother, I like to say, good for her, not for me. And I think that that is a good motto that a lot of people could adopt. I would. Okay, I guess I'll just say good for them, not for me. <laughs> yeah. See, great motto. Oh my God. Ew, yeah. imagine sleeping in your bed cover. That's what I was going okay. <laughs> Even me, a gross person, is like, that's too gross. I'm just like, okay, you're either like fresh out of childbirth, having to like air out your fluid soaked mattress and sleeping somewhere else, or you're like sleeping in the goo. Gross. <laughs> good for her, not for me. Then she has a chapter by Seth Meyers. She's obsessed with Seth Meyers, their best friend. She like loves Seth Meyers. Did Seth Meyers, was he in a relationship the whole time that they knew each other? Because I like feel like she's in love with him. She was in a relationship the whole time they knew each other. She was dating Will Arnett before they even got on SNL. Okay. 
She was married to Will Arnett for 13 years. I did not know they had met pre-fame. Yeah, they were together for a really long time, but I also think she like low-key is in love with Seth Meyers. I believe that. She talks about how they're like best friends. She talks about meeting Seth Meyers was like finding her missing piece. Anyway, so she has Seth Meyers write a little section about the night that Amy skipped the show to deliver a baby and how nice it was that she sent an encouragement to him. She's like, she was about to deliver a baby, but she was sending encouraging words to me. That's yeah, because she's in love with you. And she was like, if I encourage you to be a father one day. Maybe the father of my baby. That's the kind of person Amy is. That's the thing is everyone always has such nice things to say about Amy because I don't think that there's ever been very much adversity or like reasons to not like her until there is. Then she goes into a chapter about the day she was born. She has her parents relay their accounts. And it's like, there is not a single thing you could find me caring less about. Well, then she leaves you blank pages to write about the day you were born. I love when writers are like, why don't you take a turn at this? Did you call your parents to ask for the day you were born? I hear about it every year that I'm born. Really? Yeah. My mom always tells the story of the day I was born on my birthday. Was it interesting? No, but she was like in labor and it kind of sucked. And she's like, you're going to take five minutes to be grateful for what I did so that you could exist. My parents never really talk about the day I was born, except for like naming me. They didn't pick a name before I was born and they just picked it. Once I was born, which I feel like is odd. I know all about Scotty's birth experience. I know like everything about Scotty's birth experience. <laughs> like, I don't think it's crazy to know about your birth experience. But that's what I'm saying is I don't know about my birth experience. I just, we all know about Scotty's birth experience. <laughs> so this is a classic sorry chapter. You think it's going to be about how women say sorry too much. The chapter is called Sorry, Sorry, Sorry. And it starts out with the fact that she does say sorry a lot, which ladies, she says sorry all the time, except for when it matters. Like I said, she's a very likable person until there's like anything that comes up. So essentially what happened is she did a sketch on SNL called the Dakota Fanning show where she would play a little Dakota Fanning. And the joke was that Dakota Fanning was always discussing themes that were like beyond her years. Yes. So she's doing the Dakota Fanning show. They write the sketch for her. In the show, they have her playing with a doll that is disfigured. And the way they reference it is quite fucked up. Well, the line is, I've also got my new doll. It's from my upcoming film, Hurricane Mary, where my sister and I play severely disabled twins. And then they have a doll and the prop was disrespectful. And then Amy gets an email later finding out that Hurricane Mary is actually a real movie that Dakota Fanning actually is starring in about a real person who is currently alive. Yes. So the doll was literally a person that exists. Yeah. So she was definitively referencing a person who it turns out was watching the show that night. So she gets a letter basically saying that what she did was extremely cruel. From director Chris Cooper and his wife, Marianne Leone, not from the girl herself. And they know her because they were working on Hurricane Mary, which Amy Poehler is now finding out is a real movie that actually is coming out. She goes on a tear, kind of blaming everyone but herself. She says, I made a lot of noise because I felt bad about hurting someone's feelings and I didn't want to get quiet and figure out how I really felt. She blames the prop team. She blames the writers. She blames like the pace of the show for the fact that she didn't have time to even see the prop before she was live on air. She says, your brain is not your friend when you need to apologize. Your brain and your ego and your intellect all remind you of the facts. I kept telling myself that the only thing I was guilty of was not paying attention. Sure, I was being self-absorbed and insensitive, but who isn't? Sure, I should have been more on top of what I was saying, but isn't that somebody else's job? Didn't everyone know how busy I was? Didn't Marianne and Chris take into consideration that I was a nice person? My brain shouted these things loud and clear. My heart quietly told a different story. And then she quotes my favorite thing in the world. My friend Louis C.K. likes to say that guilt is an intersection. Getting out of it means making a choice and moving forward. I felt guilty and I felt shame, but I didn't really move. For years, I parked my car at the intersection and let it sit there until the battery ran out. Then Spike Jones helped me. Imagine taking your apology cues from Louis C.K. Her friend. And king of the apology. Okay, so she does not respond to this letter for five years until she's seated with Spike Jones at an event. And it comes out that he knows this couple that wrote to her. And she's like, if you could put me in touch, I think that that would be good for me. <laughs> so Spike Jones reaches out to Marianne, the woman who initially wrote the letter. And Marianne responds and says, I don't really need an apology for you. I think that the girl deserves an apology from you. But I don't know. I wrote a letter out of anger five years ago. I still stand by everything I said. 
So Amy writes a letter to Marianne and Chris to apologize anyway. She's like, I acknowledge it's too little too late. In the letter, she still caveats why she did what she did. She still blames it on the props, the writers, et cetera. But she's like, but I understand I need to take responsibility. Rereading it now, I notice a few things. I got a little caught up in the facts. I was hoping to defend myself, but it felt really good to try. Apologies have nothing to do with you. They are balloons in the sky. They may never land. They may even choke a bird. Then I got this. Then she gets a letter from Anastasia just saying, we're huge fans. I forgive you. And Amy ends the chapter being like, look at this woman, that beauty, what an act of grace, what a gift she gave me. She also mentions that Anastasia had been raising money to go finish her degree. And so Marianne had been like, if you're really sorry, you'll contribute to her fundraising. And so Amy says she contributed. She doesn't say how much she contributed. Hopefully it was all of it. It was just a weird chapter about being like, I say sorry too much. Once it took me five years to say sorry. But don't worry. Look at this email from the girl that I offended. She loves me still. I guess it's like, I say sorry too much. But the only time I don't say sorry is when I should have. This is the thing is she is always talking about what a nice person she is. But she's never come up against anything that would require character. And so then when she did, she like kind of fumbled the bag. So now she gets to her divorce with Will Arnett. And you may be thinking, wow, to divorce someone that you were married to for 13 years, you have two children, you've been together for almost 20 years. This is going to have something meaningful. And let me tell you, it doesn't. The chapter is called My Books on Divorce. She pitches some ideas for books on divorce. She, yeah. She talks about how getting a divorce sucks. But as my dear friend and relationship sponsor, Louis C.K. has noted, Divorce is always good news because no good marriage has ever ended in divorce. I do want to clarify for the people listening. This book was written in 2014. I believe the more severe Louis C.K. allegations came out in 2017, but she has stood by him in friendship. His manager, Dave Becky, who took a lot of flack for paving the way for Louis to like fuck over a lot of people. He was often handling the hushing. Yeah. Amy is still represented by that same manager. And the Louis C.K. thing was an open secret. I knew it. I knew it. Everyone talked about it in comedy. In 2014, she would have known what he was accused of doing. It was not public, but she was aware. So then they're just like a listicle of funny little divorce titles. I want a divorce. See you tomorrow. Get over it, but not so fast. It's a very unrevealing, unvulnerable, nonsense chapter that basically acknowledges that she is divorced and it does suck. And that's what you get. Talk to yourself like you're 90. This is the part where she talks about how fighting aging is just not really worth it, which, I mean, I guess I agree in some ways. So here's the good things from getting older. It makes you somewhat invisible so that you can get better at observing situations. It helps you see through people better. And then the friends you meet over 40 are really juicy. They are highly emulsified and full of flavor. Now that you're starting to have a sense of who you are, you know better what kind of friend you want and need. My peers are crushing it right now, and it's totally amazing and energizing to watch. So then we get to her entree into improv. She moved to Chicago after college because she joined an improv troupe in college. She like really found herself. She was so happy. It was her crew. She moves to Chicago. She joins Improv Olympic. And then starts trying to get into the second city. Some weird thing about Amy Poehler in this book is she says almost nothing, but then she'll say some things that I just absolutely don't agree with. And I'm like, how? How, when you only had about four or five statements, could I feel so differently than you? So one of the statements she opens with is, when people are nervous and put on the spot, they tend to show you who they really are. I don't like that perspective on humanity, that who you are is the worst part of your subconscious and not who you are is the considered person you try to be. Yeah, I just don't think it's a lot of grace. And I also, as someone who has taken, like, obviously, I don't know more about improv than Amy Poehler, but as someone who has taken improv class, one of the first things they say is, listen, if you say something that you don't mean or regret or is weird, don't worry about it. You say weird shit when your like, adrenaline rushes and your mind goes blank and you're trying to come up with anything. Sometimes you go to the one thing you're not supposed to do. I don't know. Yeah, when you're on the spot, the thing you say might not be representative of who you are as a human. Whereas it's interesting following up that apology chapter where it's just like, when you really think and consider your actions, you run away from conflict and don't take responsibility. Okay, so she romanticizes her early days and it is so fun. Like being young and part of a comedy scene in a city where you're just like running around, hanging out with your friends every night. Like it is incredible. She meets Matt Besser and starts dating him. He is an improviser who's like renowned within the scene. There's always like scene celebrities. 
And he has a group with two other guys. They were looking for a girl and they called that group the Upright Citizens Brigade. I also want to send the picture on this week. We will get into Matt Besser and the downfall of the Upright Citizens Brigade. She starts dating Matt Besser. She joins his group. They start performing pretty regularly. They do a lot of wacky performances that become well-known around town. Then they decide to move to New York. So she also joins the Second City Touring Company at one point. She takes Virgil Dratch's old spot. Yeah. She's on the touring company with Tina Fey. She says at one point her and Tina Fey did a two-woman show that we performed one night only. It was called Women of Color. It was a sketch about two policewomen named Powder Keg and Short Fuse. I would love to know more about that. I can't believe Tina Fey had the wherewithal to not include that in her memoir and Amy Poehler didn't even. Also, if it was a one night only thing, you could have easily left that out. You could have left that out. She also says Adam McKay and Horatio Sands would often work with them, but they had already moved to New York City because they were being groomed to join SNL. Anyway, so then her and her group decide that they are going to make the jump to New York City. I mean, it does, to her credit, sound like a hard decision. She was in line to get on the main stage at Second City. New York is big and scary. I think that she would have had a very comfortable life for a couple more years in Chicago as like a top improviser, but she made the jump. And all of her friends were kind of getting successful at this point. Tim Meadows got hired at SNL. Andy Richter was on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. She also throws this little one in there. Who needed a job? I was already my own boss. Cue my parents gasping. Money? Who needed money when I was already so rich? I was very poor. I needed money badly. I borrowed a lot from my parents. New York, here I come. It is interesting to me that she borrowed a lot of money from her parents. So we skipped basically everything about her parents in this book. She exclusively mentions that they were lower middle class. She always says lower middle class. She talks about how they didn't have much growing up, how she had a job all through high school. And it's interesting that in her 20s, she's like, my parents can just figure it out for me. (laughs) The next chapter is called The Russians Are Coming. And it's literally about how easy her childhood was. She had no problems. Nothing was bad. Everything was good. She had fun. She had friends. She wasn't the most popular, but she enjoyed herself. She says other kids didn't have loving families. So that was probably hard. When she was in high school, one of her best friend's mom got cancer and it was kind of the first time she ever experienced sadness or death in her whole life. And she says, now that I am older, life seems full of things to worry about. Sometimes I search for bad news as if reading the details will protect me somehow. I call it tragedy porn. I will fill myself up with every horrible detail about the latest horrible event and quote it back to people just like some bad news know-it-all. Remember that Austrian dad, Joseph Fritzl, who raped his daughter and kept her and her kids in the basement for 24 years? I do because I spent many nights reading every horrible specific fact about it and talking about it to everyone who would listen. I would read terrible stories to punish myself for my lucky life. Some real deep Irish Catholic shit. Sometimes I would use these tragedy porn shows to unlock deep feelings or cut through the numbness. So that's when she realizes maybe it's not good to use other people's trauma and tragedies just to feel something. And she's like, it turns out there's other things you can do to feel stuff like hang gliding. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm glad Amy Poehler discovered hang gliding. And then there's a whole chapter about what it was like working at SNL. She started like the week before September 11th. So that was tough. That was tough. She was worried that no one would do comedy ever again. She says there's no reason to laugh ever again. I had to attempt to do comedy in a city that was battered and still on fire while avoiding being killed by the anthrax that had been sent to the floors below us. Talk about jitters. I guess I do feel like Amy Poehler probably had the hardest 9-11. My 9-11 story? I was working my dream job, but it was a little bit worse now. Yeah, the rest is just like, and then one night, Justin Timberlake was there. And another night, Amy no, she's Amy Poehler, but it's, I don't a know. A lot of celebrity names. She talks about how exhilarating it was to be there when Ashley Simpson fucked up that song. And it's just like, I'm sure it was equally as exhilarating for Ashley Simpson. And then she ends hearkening back to that fear that comedy would never exist again in a post 9-11 world. And she says, comedy had not died. Someone was still letting me do it. I'm glad that they decided we have to keep comedy alive so that Amy Poehler can do it. <laughs> Osama bin Laden can take down our country, but he cannot take down our improv troops. Respect to the troops. (laughs) I really want to say at this point in time that this start a story, end a story at the end of the chapter shtick she's pulling. It did not work. I did not pick up on it. It was just such a nonsense book where like every chapter kind of sucked anyway that I was just like, okay, here's another paragraph that I don't really understand what the fuck she's saying. So then we talk about motherhood. She says every mother needs a wife, which is just like a supportive person in your life. It can be someone that you pay. It can be your mother. It can be your husband. It is interesting that not everyone's husband is their wife. 
Basically, she's saying when people say, I don't know how you do it about working moms. She's like, how do you do it? You couldn't do what I do. And says there's an unspoken pact that women are supposed to follow. I'm supposed to act like I constantly feel guilty about being away from my kids. I don't. I love my job. Mothers who stay home are supposed to pretend that they're bored in which they were doing more corporate things. They don't. They love their job. If we all stick to the plan, then there will be less blood in the streets. I agree. Okay. I was going to say, I disagree. We've read a lot from a lot of people. I literally just watched a clip with like Chris Stefano crying about being a working parent. I've never heard anyone flat out be like, I never feel guilty for being away from my kids. That's, I was just going to say, I don't think that working parents should judge. It's better to come at things from a self-deprecating place as opposed to being like, your life sucks. I could never. Yeah. But I don't think I've ever seen written this clearly. I don't feel guilty. I love my job. That is interesting. I haven't seen many mothers say that. But I do think with her, it's like that simple. I don't think she's that complex or deep of a person. Yeah, I think that's why people like her. That's very There's just likable. not much there. And then she says, how do I do it? The answer is that I have wives and wives are nannies. Yeah. And that whole chapter about being a working mother and how she balances it is literally three pages. And one of those pages is like a listicle of questions that people ask each other. So I would say she actually writes two pages on the topic of being a working mother which just goes to show how little she gives into anything. I mean, she does a listicle chapter about getting divorced. Anytime anything might actually hit a nerve, she gives you a listicle. This is the least interesting book in the world. Yes. Okay, so then she writes a chapter of sex tips, which because I care about you guys, I'm honestly just going to fully jump over this. Then she writes a chapter called Gimme That Pudding. Pudding is awards. Ashley hated this, but it made me very hungry for bread pudding. So I can't say I hated it because I love bread pudding. Okay, I like bread pudding. And if I end up eating bread pudding because of this book... I'll have called that a win. When I think of pudding, I think of those Snackwell snack packs. Oh, I love those. You know, in college, they called me snack pack. Because I used to always walk around and eat one where I'd use my tongue as a spoon because I don't want to have to carry a spoon with me. <laughs> it's so weird to me that you always have a boyfriend. <laughs> have you ever walked around sucking pudding out of a cup? Maybe that's quite sexy, Ashley. <laughs> it does sound sexy. <laughs> it wasn't. I got a lot of chocolate on my face. <laughs> Your whole head can't fit in a snack pack. And I was always trying to get to the bottom and I couldn't. You and Bug are so similar. I know. That's why we're enemies. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so she talks about awards. I mean, the beginning part I actually liked. She talks about how, like, of course, it's an honor just to be nominated. But there is just like a rush of adrenaline followed by shame when you don't win. And then you, even though you didn't care the way people just sit there asking you, like, how does it feel to have not won? It like makes you care and then you feel so sad. So she is famous for doing funny bits throughout award shows. The most famous is when she did the best actress in a comedy series pageant style. You guys can look up that clip. It is fun. I liked that. But she talks about how she does these bits to distract herself from like the sadness and shame of not winning. And she's like, it doesn't even matter if you win. You just have fun being there. And she's like, except for I don't win. So I honestly can't tell you if it's just as fun. Sorry, I just have to quote one year I sat next to Louis C.K. Louis really doesn't care about the pudding, which is one of the many things I love about him. Yeah. I also love that he is really honest, gives great advice, and knows how to drive a boat. She is obsessed with Louis. Why is she obsessed with Louis C.K.? Honest about what to whom? He's honest about wanting to jerk off at you. And he's honest about saying, if you tell anyone this, I'll ruin your career. And he's honest about never stopping. He's honest about not feeling sorry, but he's sorry if you're mad. Sorry if you're offended. Oh my God, this is the worst chapter of all time. She has sleep apnea. The end. <laughs> there was even one sentence in here that I wanted to go into about like two weeks in middle school when the girls turned on her. And she's like, yeah, everyone has that weird experience when you're a girl. One day your friends just don't like you that much. And then it blows over. And I was like, see, everyone has a bad time in middle school. Even Amy Poehler, who's never had a bad time once. Had a bad time in middle school. For two weeks and she let it blow over. And she also references how nice Nick Kroll is and she knew she loved him because he wears earplugs to bed. And that means she doesn't have to wear her sleep apnea machine, which I think she should. She could choke and die. Yeah, I think that that's for safety. How I Fell in Love with Improv Part 2. This time they're in New York and she talks about how the Upright Citizens Brigade, how they started as a troupe that would just put on shows and then they started putting on a regular bi-monthly show. Then they decided to get a space and they became a full-on theater. And it was a really big deal. The comedy scene continued to grow. Her friends continued to become successful. Upright Citizens Brigade became a TV show. She starts talking more about the UCB institution that was a major improv institution from, I guess, 2008 until like what, last year? Yeah, it fell down. She talks about UCB and what they built, which 
I go back and forth because it was incredible. The four of them did build something impressive, but there is also like a severe loss of touch. I wonder if Jake Cornell would come and do our Patreon and talk about UCB with us. We should ask. We're going to ask him. Watch the space. We'll go into UCB drama in addition to LA Candy. That's the Patreon this week. Ooh. Me and Ashley were talking about this before. I understand that UCB was a cult and it was kind of expensive. They all were though. So I agree with that. And I guess I wonder like whose fault is it that it was a cult? Because with the price thing, I don't know if you have a space in New York City and you're teaching a class, like you have to charge people for that. Right. You can't have teachers come working for free in spaces that they've rented out themselves at a loss. But that being said, I know that there was this feeling of it's a money suck and you don't really get anywhere. And I think maybe people were sold bills of goods. And so we're going to get an expert on here to talk about their UCB experience and how much of it was whose fault, where, when, why. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting line, though. She says, I'm proud of the fact that Ian and Besser and Walsh and I never made money our motivating factor. We never took a salary. We never charged artists to perform. And we never had a two drink minimum. I do think that that line, we never charged artists to perform, is deeply interesting. If you're charging tickets, first of all, why would you charge an artist to perform? I understand that when you're renting out a space, artists sometimes have to pay for that space. And one of the big problems with UCB is that artists were not paid. So you're charging tickets. You're earning money there. Why is it like a pat on the back? We never charged artists to perform. Like we never doubly profited off of our shows. Congratulations. I mean, you really should not be inviting people to perform on your show and then charging them. That means they weren't invited. That's the class. Exactly. She also says last year we sold over 400,000 tickets, produced over 4,000 shows, taught over 11,000 students, and employed 216 people. I do think that's too many people to employ. I don't think they should have been employing so many people. Also, a lot of people worked for free in exchange for classes there. I don't understand the finances of UCB. That's the problem. No one did. (laughs) Okay. So then we have a chapter about parents. She has one of the worst odes to her parents I think I've ever read. Most people take a minute to get to know their parents. And she kind of just is like, my mom's pretty and loves to tap dance. My dad's goofy and is good at arm wrestling. That's them. Bye. Maybe they'll meet again someday. I mean, it's the least interesting, least revealing, least emotional thing I've ever seen written. She really is not a writer. She's a performer. Yeah. It's not badly written in that it's like clunky or bad, but there's just not a thing revealed. There's not a touching moment. There's not a lick of humanity. Yeah. There's no like climax. There's no build. Then we have a section about tipping your waitresses because she was a waitress. This section was actually in the New Yorker. I remember. It's not good. If you don't believe us, you could go read it. I don't know. Nothing she writes is particularly interesting. She had a summer job once. There you go. Treat your career like a bad boyfriend. This is a section about how in order to make it in showbiz, you have to not want it. She starts off weirdly by talking about how she does not like when strangers say hi to her in any capacity. I feel like there's that stereotype that New Yorkers are gruff, but secretly very helpful. And if you ask a New Yorker for directions, but she's like, don't talk to me. Don't approach me. Don't even look at me. And I'm like, okay, Amy, got it. But then she says, I don't like disappointing people. Some would say this is codependent behavior, which I have discovered is a term that explains how most everyone acts all of the time unless one is a sociopath or a Russian computer that plays chess. And I actually really thought that was a funny line because that feels how we talk about TikTok today where it's like, do you ever get hungry and look for something to eat and nothing's there, but you look again for some reason? That's a mental illness. (laughs) And it is like, oh, what? Not wanting to disappoint people? That's a behavioral problem. I don't know. That's just basic human experience, right? Yeah. She talks about how she gets her career and she says, I was in UCB and Annie Richter suggested I do stuff for Conan. Being on Conan helped me land a part in Deuce Bigelow. My UCB television show and friends helped me get an audition for SNL. My SNL connections resulted in Parks and Rec. See, years and years of hard work and little bits of progress isn't nearly as entertaining as imagining me telling a joke in a Boston food court when suddenly Lauren Michaels walks up and says, I must have you for a little show I do. I actually find that much more interesting. As somebody in the industry, I hate the American Idol story of someone was just singing during their janitorial shift and became the next Susan Boyle. Like, I don't like a story of a nobody becoming the greatest star of all time. Most people take 10 years to become an overnight success. Yeah. And I I feel like in comedy, people always say, if you stick it out long enough, either you'll become successful or you'll have a friend who will become successful and take you with. Yeah. And I do think that's true. And I kind of find that a more interesting story because I think that that's a more hopeful story. When people are like, oh, you just need a big break. I'm like, you don't understand. You need a big break every couple of weeks for the rest of your life. There's usually not one thing that will skyrocket someone. Jennifer Lawrence is someone that people always look to as like an overnight success. Jennifer Lawrence was in the industry for, I think, 
four or five years in like failed pilots and random things. And then she was nominated for an Oscar that one year when no one even knew who she was. She was like just that random girl nominated. And then two years later, everyone was obsessed with her. Yeah. And so I actually find the Amy Poehler story much more interesting because it feels like how it actually goes for people. You get little things here, little things there, and then they all start slowly amounting to things and doing a good job in a bad job Mm -hmm. will take you further than one great secret moment. And I also like what she says here. She talks about how your career and your passion need to match up. Your talent and your drive need to kind of work in tandem. It's not the most talented person who makes it or the most driven person who makes it. And some people with talent don't have the drive they need. And some people with drive don't have the talent they need. So then the point of this is your career won't take care of you. It won't call you back or introduce you to its parents. Your career will blow you off if you call it too much. It's never going to leave its wife. Your career is fucking other people and everyone knows but you. And then she says, but that's different than creativity. You have to nurture your creativity because that'll keep you happy. But career is different. Career is a stringing together of opportunities and jobs, mixed in public opinion and past regrets, add a dish of future panic and a whole lot of financial uncertainty. But then she ends it on this really annoying note that I just disagree with. So she's on a panel with the guy who wrote The Wire, David Simon. And she says, we both agree on one thing, and it's that ambivalence is the key to success. You have to care about your work, but not about the result. You have to care about how good you are and how good you feel, but not about how good people think you are, or how good people think you look. And then she says, you will never climb career mountain and get to the top and shout, I made it. You will rarely feel done or complete or even successful. It doesn't matter how much you get, you are left wanting more. Ambivalence can help him the beast. Remember, your career is a bad boyfriend. It likes it when you don't depend on it. It will reward you every time you don't act needy. It will chase you if you act like other things are more important to you. If your career is a bad boyfriend, it is healthy to remember that you can always leave and go sleep with somebody else. I don't think she knows what she's saying. Everyone we know who's always said, like, once I get this, I'll be happy. That does not work. You won't be. But ambivalence is not the key. (laughs) What she's trying to say is that success is diminishing returns. I mean, when we were able to quit our day jobs to do comedy, we were so fucking happy. I think every subsequent level will not make us as happy as that. And at some point, everyone needs to recognize what more happiness am I getting out of this small choice that I'm making to try to get further in my career. I think that that's true. I think she heard some guy say ambivalence is key one time and misunderstood it and just like plugged it in here. She uses this example, like when her six-year-old son wants to play with a toy, he pretends he doesn't want it that much that his little brother doesn't take it from him. And I'm like, everyone I know in the industry who wanted to be successful, like wants it fucking bad. And I hate this idea that it's like, oh, you're trying too hard. Fuck you. Everyone I know is trying so hard. Improv is trying hard. Improv is trying hard. SNL is the most try hard shit in the game. I'm sorry, but if you have ever dressed up as Dakota Fanning for television, that's try hard. I just like don't like this idea that, oh, you just want it too badly or you care too much. Like, People have to see you want it. If people don't know you want it, they won't come to you with jobs. They will go to the person who wants it. Also, wanting it is the driving force behind everyone I know who's become very successful. They wake up every day and they work very hard because they want it. Yeah. And I think there's this idea that like comics are just stoners who do whatever. And like someone gets picked eventually. And I know comics who think that that's how it works. And those are not the comics that get picked. The comics who get quote unquote picked are the ones that are like waking up at 6 a.m. and writing for hours and like working for hours. And I'm sorry, Amy Poehler, but I don't think you created a giant UCB empire by not wanting it. (laughs) Then she has one page about her partner in crime, Tina Fey, in which she clarifies it's because Tina Fey wrote about her in her book. Tina Fey is my comedy wife. I've known her for almost a double decade. We met each other when we were poor and single. Now we are both rich as shit and have husbands all over the world. People think of us as a comedy team and I am not quick to correct them. Why wouldn't I want to connect myself to the fiercest and most talented voice in the comedy world? I don't know why wouldn't you, but it sounds like you don't. I'm not quick to correct them. So what is the correct? What's correct? I'm mistaken for Tina all the time. I recently renewed my license at the DMV and the African-American woman asked me to do my Sarah Palin. She was confused and perhaps racist. Amy loves that joke. This is the third time in this book where she makes the joke that if a black person mixes her up with another white SNL cast member, they're racist. She loves that joke. Hilarious. Let's get to the part where she goes to Haiti. I don't, it, she really doesn't say shit about Tina Fey. She's like, no one understands me except for Tina and Judge Judy, but I don't even know Judge Judy, but Tina is also successful with kids, so she gets it. Tina shows her love for you by writing for you. I can't tell you how many times she wrote something special and wonderful for me. Most of my memories of her at SNL involved Tina sitting at her computer working on something for someone else. Tina wrote a lovely chapter about me in her book, and boy, have I dined out on that for a while. 
In an attempt to return the favor, I will honor Tina with an acrostic poem, arguably the laziest form of writing. I don't think she likes Tina Fey. She couldn't even bring herself to say something nice. The A in Tina is able to do things well. E stands for Elizabeth is her real name, but I call her Betty. Y is YOLO. One time my kindergarten teacher wrote an acrostic poem about me. And for the Y, she wrote yap, sit, nap. And my parents always mention it. And I'm like, yeah, I do fucking yap a lot. Even when we're supposed to be napping. And I've made it into a career. (laughs) So this next chapter, I think, is about sexual harassment. I think this next chapter is just because in 2014, as a woman in comedy, you had to be like, what's it like to be a woman in comedy? And I think what she wanted to say is, it's fine. I hang out with all the guys. The guys can see, see me as one of the guys. Like, I have nothing to say. It's super easy. It's not hard for any woman. But they were like, you can't say that. So she had to come up with something. And she doesn't come up with much. Yeah. She says, by show of hands, how many of you have seen a strange penis on the street, on the subway, at a sleepover? She mentions, you know, seeing guys jerking off outside her window around New York. When she was a kid, she saw someone. But she says, I count myself very lucky. That is what very lucky feels like. Oof. Many women and even some men have had their own version of how they have been lucky or unlucky. Maybe Louis C.K. has jerked off at her, but she doesn't see that as really a problem. I guess. (laughs) She's like, I'm so lucky that Louis jerked off at me. She goes on to tell a story about a time where she was put in a really uncomfortable position. And the climax of the story is that a man who made her feel uncomfortable hugged her. And she says, do you think he would have hugged a male performer? Me either. Either way, it never ends. What did your friend Louis C.K. have to say about this situation, your favorite advice giver? (laughs) So the situation that happens at the end is she's doing an award show for somebody. She's doing a little bit. At the end of the bit, before her punchline, they like cut the mic or something. The technical fucked over her bit. And so she's pissed about it. And she storms away, as she's right to do. And the guy's like, yeah, I don't know. It's fine. I think it'll be fine. And she's mad. She's like, no, no, I want to do my bit. And they're like, eh. And then he comes up to her. And she thinks he's going to apologize for messing up her bit. And he's like, hey, I don't know that we got all the audio. Do you mind redoing it? And she basically says no. And then he asks again. And she's like, I already said no. And then he goes, you look upset. You want a hug? And she says yes. And she's like, I wish I had said no. This sucks. I mean, I agree. I agree. It's really uncomfortable. He fucked up his job. I think if Amy had been a man, he would not have done it. But something about the way she writes this is so unpowerful. It's so, what are you talking about? Yeah, I guess I just am like, no one deserves to be in a situation where they feel uncomfortable. No one deserves to be in like a situation alone in a room with a man where that man makes them feel uncomfortable. But I don't think she cared about the hug. I think she was mad that her bit got fucked up, which I think she has every right to be mad about. But then the story ends with being like, he asked if I could give him a hug, if he could give me a hug. And I said, yes. I think she could have written it more powerfully, but she doesn't. I guess I don't think she could have written it more powerfully because she still publicly associates with Louis C.K. and references him several times throughout this book. So even if she had written something powerful, I would have been like, okay, now what are your actions? It's just a really odd thing to have even included with so little care. It just didn't do that much. No. And she writes about how she was on Parks and Rec and it was really good. She writes an ode to each one of her castmates. Do you know something that I forgot about until I listened? I listened to Fluently Forward's deep dive on Parks and Rec blind items. Because mm-hmm. I forgot until I saw that cast photo how fucked up the cast is. There's a lot of people in it that are problematic. I guess if you have any cast. I mean, look at that 70s show. You make a lot of people famous. That's true. I just think it's very funny when she talks about how adding Rob Lowe to the cast made it feel like they weren't going to be canceled. When from reading Rob Lowe's book, I genuinely believe looking at his scope of work his famousness is all in his handsomeness and everything that he's been in except for parks and rec has been like he's been the weak link of everything anyway she then goes through all of her castmates and friends did you know that rashida jones is really pretty in real life did you know that she loves nick offerman she just loves everybody she has nothing to say about anything the show wouldn't have been the same without aubrey chris pratt is amazing cool 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 Things they don't tell you about the biz. An actor has a job. A writer has a job. A director has a different job. And a producer has yet another job. I don't understand. This whole chapter, it starts with acting is the best. And then it goes on to be like, if the show is a hit, everyone gives you credit. But if the show is a flop, you really don't have much control over it. That sucks. Writing is the best. Writing is a real power. The directing is the best. Producer is the best. What are you even saying, Amy? Don't say anything. She writes a chapter about time travel. It's a chapter about having memories. She's like, did you know that if you hold an object that your dad owned, it could remind you of your dad? 
you time travel to be with him. Change happens and time passes. If you hate your stupid, boring town and can't wait to get out of there and show everybody what a kick-ass breakdancer you are, then this is good news. If you get really good at breakdancing and then realize nobody gives a shit about breakdancing anymore, this is bad news. Time moves too slow or too fast. But I know a secret. You can control time. You can stop it or stretch it or loop it around. What? Are That's you- not true. I don't know. So she just is like, can you believe my dad played a piano and now my son plays the piano? And it's like, we're all connected by the piano. Time is a circle. Time is a flat square, I've heard. I don't. Where did you hear that? <laughs> Ugh. And then, as I suspected, she is a narc, even though she smokes a ton of weed in this whole book. She writes obligatory drug stories or lessons I learned on mushrooms. She talks about the drugs that she has tried, the drugs that she hasn't tried. She says, I've tried basically all of them except for the bad ones. And by the bad ones, she means um, like schedule one narcotics. She also says she would never let her sons smoke marijuana. Even, even though, though she smokes a lot of weed. Like, okay, so you are a freaking narc. She's like, I have a friend who told their son that he was allergic to weed. It was genius. I don't know. I just think it's very interesting. She talks about like the reason she never did meth or heroin is because she like met people who did meth and heroin and they were so fucked up and weird. And it's just <laughs> like, okay, Amy, I'm so happy for you that you were too smart and cool to try heroin because that's definitely how they got hooked on it. They were just like, idiots and then she has a chapter called my boys about how much she loves her sons and how they love poop jokes and isn't that the funniest most unique thing you've ever heard about a three-year-old she went through a hard time at one point right where she was going through a divorce and so then her friend was like why don't you come on this trip to haiti with me so she goes to haiti and then she gets back and is like haiti was really chaotic i'm happy to be in my life Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not some crazy white girl who's comparing her divorce to the problems of the Haitian people. All I'm saying, it felt totally chaotic and therefore familiar to my brain. You're saying the earthquake in Haiti reminded you of your divorce? She also writes about how hard it is to be a kid there because they're slaves. Puts your little divorce into perspective, doesn't it? But there was also like really hot people there, she says. She says she wishes she was a lesbian so she could have hooked up with some of them. I lay in bed and thought about time and pain and how many different people live under the same big, beautiful moon. And now the conclusion. Thank God. This book was so hard to read. One, because it was slippery. It literally is slippery. Physically, the pages are are slick. They're laminated with bit, I think. (laughs) The robots will kill us all. A conclusion. For some reason, the last little bit of this book is about like phone addiction. It is like deeply 2014 to have written a chapter that's like, can you believe how much I look at my phone? And I'm like, literally look at my screen time. If you could really time travel and see what my screen time looks like, you would lose your fucking 2014 shit. The last page of this whole book is her thanking a TSA person for returning her laptop that she left on a plane. Yeah. And that's how it ends. I just feel like this chapter, all of the little tidbits are like, you don't have sound relationships. She does that thing, you know, when someone like makes an error and instead of learning from that error, they make like a sweeping choice about the rest of their life. She like texts something to someone that she doesn't want them to read. And she's like, now I try not to text anything that I wouldn't mind the whole world seeing. And it's like, well, that's not what that means. That means be careful about what you text. Can I say something? Sure. I don't know that she has female friends. I don't think she does. I think she loves Rashida Jones because they work together and Rashida is beautiful to look at, she says. But I think her one opportunity to have a female friend was Tina Fey and the way that she kind of hates her in this book. She wants to hang out with the guys and she has the depth of a boring guy. Yeah. There's just nothing more. I don't know, you guys. I mean, she's not the worst person in the world. She's not even bad. I think if she hadn't written this book, she would have been better off. I don't know why she wrote this book. She had nothing to say. She spent the entire time talking about how hard it is to write a book. And it's I mean, like, we say this all the time. Like, I had no reason to dislike her until I read this book and I was just like, ugh. I didn't, I just didn't know enough about her and that is where some people should stay. It's really bizarre. This week on the Patreon, as we said, we're going to get into the UCB. And then also I read LA Candy. Fun. And Ashley's reading what? I'm reading Joe Troman, the Fallout Boy guy's memoir. We will not be covering a Fallout Boy memoir on the main pod unless it's Pete Wentz. But I thought it would be really interesting and I'm really disappointed by it. (laughs) So tune in to hear a brief tirade. Last week we did Deep D on the Patreon and we love you guys so much. And Oh, yeah. Please buy your Boston tickets if you're thinking about it. And Ashley. Yes. Who would you like to thank right now? Thank you to our five-star reviewing Wormies. Thank you to Melissa V. Morris, the only Morris in my book. Thank you, Becca Eka. I appreciate the echo. It is melodious. I don't know if that's a word, but I meant it as a nice thing. 
Thank you, Carolina on my mind. I friggin' love Carolina. Take your shirt off, twist it on your head like a helicopter. Thank you, I don't get that. Listen, whatever you get, I get. And whatever you don't get, I'll just skip it. Thank you to Udita. I would love to sit down for some good eats with you. Thank you to Police 101, the only cop I will ever thank. (laughs) Thank you to Not Kendall Jenner. I appreciate you coming in here and reminding us that you are, in fact, not Kendall and a better Kardashian instead. Thank you, EB91. Shout out to 1991. Thank you, Dogs Aren't Allowed. Dogs are absolutely allowed here, I promise. Thank you, R. Lawrence. Cry cry ABAB. Don't cry, baby. Thank you, Mint Chocolate Chip, a deeply underrated ice cream. Thank you to Lauren Lennon. Imagine a world where there was a Lauren Lennon instead. Thank you, Raquel26, my favorite Vanderpump star. Thank you, HMoney420. Smoke them if you got them. Thank you, Andy96. I appreciate you times 96. Thank you, Sarah Beth. Uh, you are the Beth. Thank you, ZPG123. Um, 123, you're the best there ever be. Thank you, Maya's fucking dead. Huge bummer. <laughs> I think that's it for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you. <laughs>